0: let us pray. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us, we pray. Open our hearts and our minds that we might receive your word for us today, and in our hearing, equip us to obey. All these prayers we make in the name of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. Amen. Our first scripture reading today comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. And a sermon text for today comes from Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for people trample on me. All day long foes oppress me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many fight against me. O Most High, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I am not afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they seek to injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps. As they hope to have my life, so repay them for their crime. In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your record? Then my enemies will retreat in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I am not afraid. What can a mere mortal do to me? My vows to you I must proclaim, O Lord. I will render thank-offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death and my feet from falling, so that I may walk before God in the light of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Psalm 56 describes the anguish of a person in dire straits. Enemies lurk in the shadows, seeking to trample him and carry out evil. The psalmist grasps for trust in God, crying out for deliverance from the midst of foes. He's experiencing a brush with death, the universal threat common to all of us human beings. The psalm reaches a crescendo in verse 8 when the psalmist declares, You have kept count of my tossings. That is, my sorrow, my anguish, my misery. You have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle, are they not in your record? The psalmist declares that God's eyes are on our tears, and that our, as our tears drop off our cheeks, God catches them in a bottle for safe keeping, for remembrance. Isn't that a lovely image? God catches our tears in a bottle so as not to forget our sorrow. God doesn't just see from afar when we're crying, when we feel bad. God doesn't just remain at a distance. No, God keeps track of our tears by drawing near to us. God remembers our sorrow even after it is past. God keeps a record of our tears on file where all the days of our lives are kept. You see, our tears are precious to God. God draws especially near and is especially attentive to us when we weep. Our tears connect us to God all the more intimately. It's a beautiful piece of good news. Yet even so, we usually prefer to suppress our tears, thinking that it's better not to cry. With steely resolve, we go about our business as if nothing is wrong, holding back the tears lurking just behind our eyes, trying to lasso our reeling minds and muzzle our tumultuous thoughts so as not to lose control. God may be attentive to those who weep, but we tend not to be people who want attention drawn to our tears. During a painful semester in college, I had a 25-minute break between my first two classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And unable to accomplish much else during this awkward stretch of time, I got into a routine of going back to my dorm room, collapsing on my bed, and letting the tears loose. It became my designated crying time. When we're going through something difficult, sometimes we need designated crying time. I would experience a wonderful sense of relief upon releasing the floodgates after holding back the tears for so long. It was the emotional equivalent of the physical relief our muscles get when we finally set the groceries down on the counter after carrying them in from the car all at once. It's a relief that always seems to come just in the nick of time. My dorm room was a refuge in college because I wouldn't have been caught dead crying like that in the student life building or the library. Most of us don't want to be seen crying in public, right? I would bet some of us would rather trip and fall or walk around with our pants on backwards or our shirts on inside out, then be seen weeping, for such is the embarrassment some of us feel about our tears. The privilege of being a pastor means I'm often in conversations with people about things that bring them close to tears. And when tears do begin to flow, 99 out of 100 times, the first words that follow are, I'm sorry. For some reason, we often feel as though we need to apologize when we cry. I saw this just the other day at the end of the Wimbledon women's final. The runner-up, Carolina Pliskova, began to tear up during her runner-up speech, and immediately as she did, she murmured, I'm sorry, into the microphone. I've been wondering about why we apologize when we cry. Even if we're in a safe, private place with another person we trust, we apologize for our tears as though we've done something inappropriate or offensive. Our tears are precious in the sight of God as we've seen, and yet we don't seem to think that our tears will be precious in the sight of one another. Why? Is it because we're taught growing up that big kids don't cry? Is it because we think crying is a sign of weakness? Is it because we don't want to be someone else's charity case? Is it because we don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable? Perhaps we sense that if we cry, we might make others cry, which we'd equate with making someone else feel bad. If you and your spouse are both criers during movies, chances are you know not to glance at one another during certain scenes when you're both holding back tears, because the moment you do, the tears in your eyes will burst forth. Tears, like yawning, are contagious. Whatever our reasons for not wanting to cry in front of others, the nature of our grief or sadness may make our tears feel beyond our control. Those who grieve know the sudden ways weeping can be conjured out of nowhere. There's the ongoing general heaviness of grief, and then there are the sudden waves of sadness that sting with their specificity. There are lots of times when something happens that reminds me of my father who died many years ago. I might hear an Eagle song come on the radio and want to share with someone else in the car, the Eagles are my dad's favorite band. We always listen to the song on our way to play tennis. But for fear of tearing up, I sometimes just swallow moments like these and try to move on. Even good memories are avoided for fear of the tears. This sort of avoidant behavior, though, is not considered to be a helpful coping mechanism. It used to be, in the past, grief experts taught that it was better not to think much about those we've lost. To move through a loss, we were supposed to focus our emotions elsewhere. And grief was seen as the process of relocating our affections from the deceased back to the living. Now, however, grief theorists talk about the importance of what are called continuing bonds with those we've lost. A continuing bond is a way of maintaining our emotional connections with deceased loved ones by finding meaning in the ways that we remember them. Eating your late husband's favorite meal on his birthday, for instance, is a continuing bond. Going to your mom's favorite beach to watch the sunrise is a continuing bond. And in my case, sharing with those in the car that the eagles are my favorite My dad's favorite band demonstrates a continuing bond with him. Continuing bonds are healthy and they help us to grieve well even if it means we tear up at unexpected times. Furthermore, the notion that it's not okay to cry is tangled up in a mess of gender norms and expectations. It's often impressed upon men that crying means you're not strong or rational. Men may be taught that Crying is unmanly, for it's more noble and dignified to be stoic in the midst of grief or pain. Such views are not only present in Western cultures. Many cultural traditions around the globe require boys to undergo some kind of painful rite of passage in order to rise in status from boys to men. And tears during the ritual indicate that you're not ready. In a certain country, I once spotted an adolescent boy being marched off somewhere by a swirling crowd, and when I inquired about what was going on, my guide explained that he was headed to a ritual circumcision, and my guide noted that the boy would only pass the test if he endured the ceremony without crying. On the other hand, Aristotle wrote long ago that women are, quote, more easily moved to tears, end quote. And this stereotype has long influenced Western philosophies. The notion that women are more emotional is often claimed as an excuse to exclude women from positions of power and leadership. You see, in the end, women and men alike are hurt by gendered expectations related to emotions and tears. So we should reject any idea that it's more natural or acceptable for one person to cry than any other. You see, there's so many sources of the angst we feel about our tears. And it saddens me that the fear of weeping and the pressure not to cry exists at all in our lives, but it does. I can't tell you how often I find myself saying, it's okay to cry. It's okay to cry because, as our scripture says, God has a record of our weeping and keeps our tears in a bottle. It's okay to cry because tears lead to God's embrace. It's okay to cry because our tears are precious in God's sight. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus expresses a full range of emotions, including that of weeping. When Jesus goes to see Mary and Martha after their brother Lazarus has died, Jesus begins to weep with them. In fact, John eleven thirty five, 35, the shortest verse in the Bible simply reads, Jesus wept. So if Jesus wept, what does that say about our culture's conviction that we need to be strong by not weeping? After all, tears are the gateway to our moment's of deepest experience, whether agony or joy. Think about the glistening eyes of someone watching us as we walk away and say goodbye with a long journey ahead. Think about the tears of gratitude that flow freely as a parent embraces a child who has returned home from military service. Think about the tears of relief that come when we graduate or receive an award or accomplish something we never thought we could do. These are the sorts of moments that call for tears. These are moments we never forget. The fact that Jesus wept suggests that there's something divine about tears. If Jesus wept, I don't think it's a stretch to say that tears reflect something of what it means that humans are made in the image of God. For in Christ, the true God and the true human come together. Think about it this way. Humans share almost all of our bodily fluids with animals, right? And most of these fluids we consider to be gross. Blood, vomit, urine, sweat, saliva. These all induce a sense of disgust in us. You're probably squirming in your seat just hearing those words. These fluids elicit a sense of disgust in us because they remind us of our mortality. Contact with them may spread disease or indicate sickness or woundedness, and so we know to recoil from them. But Richard Beck points out that the one exception to this disgust response is our response to the bodily fluid that seems quintessentially human and spiritual tears. Tears are associated with the deepest and most profound human experiences. They're a kind of spiritual fluid that separates us from the animal kingdom. Now, I'm not being cruel and suggesting animals don't have feelings or something. Animals are known to express emotion, including grief, by the way. And it's true that animals produce tears. But animals produce tears for the purpose of lubricating their eyes. And unlike human tears, animal tears are not conjured as a response to environmental stressors. Animals don't break down in heavy sobs like humans. Consequently, tears express something of human uniqueness. Instead of producing disgust in us, tears produce the opposite. Tears elicit compassion. After all, nobody says, Gross, you got your tears on my shoulder while you were crying, right? No, tears elicit compassion, and in so doing, draw us back into the arms of our compassionate God, the God who suffers with us in Christ. The word compassion literally means to suffer together. Compassion is why we cry when we see someone else crying. Compassion is why we have an impulse to attend to a crying person. Compassion is what God feels when we cry. It's why God puts our tears in a bottle. It's why Jesus wept. And God promises that one day, the tears will be wiped from our eyes. That all the things that today make us cry from grief or sorrow or longing will be made well again in God's new creation. When I imagine that day promised us in Revelation, I imagine that after God wipes the tears from our eyes, God will also empty the bottles of tears that God has kept a record of throughout our lives and throughout history. After all, with redemption complete, a record of our tears, a record of all that still needs to be set right, will no longer be needed. Instead, the only tears we will shed will be tears of joy, tears of gladness and praise, tears equally well received by the one who makes all things well. So until that day, my friends, remember one simple thing. It's okay to cry. It's okay to cry. Thanks be to God. Amen.